Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the Intelligence Squared podcast. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. Today we're diving into a captivating subculture that has made significant contributions to society, yet often remains overlooked. The world of LGBTQ ballroom culture. With roots in the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, ballroom culture evolved into a vibrant movement that has since been a haven of self-expression, creativity and community for LGBTQ individuals particularly those from the Black and Latino community. It's a world of flamboyant fashion, fierce competition, and above all, a celebration of identity. In this unique world, one of the cornerstones is the ball. The ball is a competitive event where individuals or teams from various houses take part in multiple categories of dance, fashion, and aesthetics. Each participant walks or competes for prizes and more critically, for the recognition and applause of their peers. This is where the iconic dance form voguing takes centre stage, a stylized dance involving poses and catwalk strutting. The balls are not merely parties. They are stages for self-expression and acceptance, boldly challenging societal norms. In today's episode, we're discussing the significant impact of ballroom culture on popular culture and its commodification in the mainstream. We're addressing its crucial role as a form of protest and its influence on the fight for LGBTQ rights and acceptance. To speak about all this and more, I'm honoured to be joined by Ricky Tucker, lecturer at the New School in New York and author of, and the category is, Inside New York's Vogue, House and Ballroom Community. Ricky, welcome to Intelligent Squared. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for having me. So to begin, I just want to ask about what was your personal introduction to ballroom? Um, well, a lot of my first touch points were those that everyone else in the world has experienced. So Madonna's Vogue, I remember that coming out in 1990. I was probably about eight years old. And I remember my mom and her best friend, um, who were both from, from New York, um, even though we were in North Carolina. I remember them referring to it as, we heard it on the radio and I remember them referring to it as a theft. Like they were like, the exact quote is Madonna thinks she's one of the children now. And so... You know, I knew something was a kind of a miss. Um, and then, you know, I lived in Boston for a little while, had my first sort of art school boyfriend, and we rented Paris is Burning from um, a video store called Video Underground back when those things existed. And we watched it, and I just was floored by so many things, how toxic masculinity seemed to not permeate this subculture, but um, also had this weird feeling that it existed before I knew it. It had like it seemed like the perfect antidote to a lot of the misogyny that we see out in the world and racism and, and classism, etc. And so then I moved to New York 
And I started um, my undergrad at the New School, which is a university in uh, downtown Manhattan. The first class I signed up for was a class called Vogology, which was a dance class that teaches you how to Vogue. Um, and then the other half, it was two days a week. And then the other half was critical theory about the subculture of ballroom. Um, and so I learned from some of the greats, some people who are who were in Paris's Burning and other folks who uh, came into the community afterwards, but all community leaders. And so I really became a friend and then eventually a family member of the subculture of the ballroom community. Um, you've mentioned a few things there. So Madonna's Vogue, this word theft, children. These are all things that I'm going to come back to throughout our conversation. In my introduction, I said that there's a hundred year history of ballroom and its genesis. So would you be able to take us back to the beginning and talk about the origins of ballroom and what were the factors that contributed to its birth and how did it evolve in its early years? So it's really hard to sort of pin down. I mean, I think if you think about um, ballroom and drag balls or drag pageantry, drag pageants, you they're, they're one and the same until a certain point. So um, we can track drag balls um, run and organized by queer black men back to um, the turn of the 19th century. Primarily, one of my friends, Channing Joseph, is writing a book um, right now about the first uh, drag balls that were ever held by a man named William Dorsey Swan, who was a formerly enslaved person in the United States. Um, he was holding drag balls for folks. So you can kind of pinpoint it there. Then during the Harlem Renaissance, they became very specifically sort of the flavor of what we feel today in terms of where they originate in Harlem and who was holding them. There was a lodge called the Oddfellows Lodge that started around the Harlem Renaissance. And they asked permission from a British um, sort of fraternity to use the Oddfellows moniker to start their own all black Harlem Renaissance Oddfellows organization. And they held balls annually. Langston Hughes writes about going to one of these balls with Madam C.J. Walker's daughter, Alayla Walker, um, in around 1927. He wrote about it in the 40s, but he referred to a ball in the 20s. And he called it a spectacle and it just felt like a modern ball. Cut to the 60s, if anyone's ever seen the documentary The Queen, which features Flawless Sabrina, who's a person that I met before, was May She Rest in Peace. Um, wonderful sort of uh, organizer of the uh, drag ball community in New York City um, and, ab and abroad and just across the board. There's a moment where you can see the modern house system start. So Crystal LaBeja was a, um, a, what we would refer to as a trans woman now, um, a black woman. She won Miss Manhattan, which was sort of a local pageant. And then she went to follow Sabrina's pageant. And she was kind of tired of it being what she thought was rigged um, towards the favor of sort of white um, women, whatever the, the, the sort of demographic de jure was, which was usually white. But then at, the, at that certain point, um, Andy Warhol was one of the judges. So there was a Twiggy-esque sort of a lith, wayfish sort of um, standard. And she got, I believe she got second runner up, Crystal did, and Harlow won. Crystal felt Harlow shouldn't have gotten it. I think most people feel that way. And... Uh, she flipped out and she was just like, you know, this is ridiculous. I know I'm one of the more beautiful people in the world and you all are constantly telling me I'm not. So that was in 1967, 68. At that point, Crystal LaBeja left and formed the first house in Ballroom called the House of LaBeja, which was queer and uh, multicultural, mostly black. 
that was the very first house. And after that, all of the houses sort of formed after that. And that is the modern ballroom house system that we refer to. The timeline was the same between drag and, and ballroom. And then all of a sudden it just branched out at that point. So it's sort of hard to say when it started, but you know, it's true. Identity has sort of always been in the zeitgeist and in different forms, starting in New York, definitely in the South for over a hundred years. And um, how dangerous would it be to attend these early balls? Not at all. I mean, so what's interesting about ballroom is that people always think it's a brand new thing, but it's been a series of exponential peaks and valleys over a hundred years. And so, you know, there's always been sort of the white artist voyeuristic interest in ballroom, definitely since the 1900s. In that ball that Langston Hughes went to, he was talking about how up in the rafters in Harlem, there were white audiences who came from downtown up to Harlem just to see these balls. So there's always been that relationship there. Um, It was never dangerous for voyeurs. It's only ever dangerous for the people participating because dressing in drag and like if you, you had to get to the lodge or get to the ballroom venue and then change because walking around in the city to this day in drag or being trans is lethal. It's potentially lethal. So it's never um, dangerous for anyone in the audience unless, you know, unless you're too close to the runway and then maybe you get hit by, by a stray hand while someone's voguing. But other than that, it's super welcoming. I mean, I always say that ballroom is the most exclusive club that welcomes everyone. Um, there's free food there. Most balls are free. Like, you know, it's, it's run by community health organizations. So it's not, there's really no danger. The most dangerous is being a participant. I want to go through like the key elements of ballroom. On the surface, these might seem light and performative, but a lot of these have a, a deeper and more complex meaning. So just then you were talking about the houses. Could you explain what the house system is in ballroom and kind of the architecture of a house? Um, so the first houses um, started with Crystal LeBeja, um, and she was the very first house mother ever. Um, and then, you know, I believe the founding houses after that, there's, you know, LeBeja, the house of Corey, which is attached to Dorian Corey, one of the best orators of ballroom history. Ebony, Dupree, House of Dupree, which is Paris Dupree, the sort of titular character who named Paris's Burning. I'm forgetting some, but they, they, they were they're founding mothers and they were all trans women of color, um, which we always need to acknowledge because black men, black gay men tend to be the number one population of ballroom and often the judges of uh, different categories. But trans black women and, and Latin trans women are the ones that founded the whole thing. And they're the ones that keep the whole thing running. Misogyny creeps in there too. Ballroom is just a microcosm of the rest of the world, um, maybe a little bit freer. So um, the structure of the house system. So you have a house mother, say Crystal of Asia, and she sees you out in the street. So ballroom, it, whether that be like on the piers voguing here in New York City, there are a lot of... Um, organizations that tend to queer uh, youth here in New York City. New York is very socialist in that way. And there are a lot of organizations that will sort of catch you if you feel like you're falling. But mainly what the house ballroom system does is act as um, a counter to the very true fact that LGBTQ youth, especially of color, are the number one displaced population here. So, you know, you're kicked out of your house, your parents don't accept you for who you are, and you find a house mother who gives you both, um, well, sometimes shelter, definitely nurturing, often a sense of purpose, 
in terms of walking a ball. And so you inherit a family. I mean, I have, we, we call it the kinship um, system. You know, I don't walk balls. My contribution is literary to the ballroom community, but I do have a gay father. I have two gay fathers. My, I call them my two gay dads and they're ballroom scholars and founders of houses and they've walked and what have you. It's just like any sort of familial structure and ballroom fills that void because there are so many kids who need to be nurtured and um, parented out in the world. So it really does, it does, it does a lot of things. It gives you sort of an artistic outlet in terms of performance and it gives you a family and a familial structure. And I mean, balls have food there for free, you know, like so often it's an answer to sort of chronic poverty too, in a lot of different ways. And because so many kids in New York are sort of entrenched in the not-for-profit organization sort of complex they have a sense of purpose and also jobs and skill sets, you know, for better or for worse, ballroom is at the front lines of HIV prevention um, in the not-for-profit sector. And so a lot of kids, you know, start at an institution called Hetrick Martin here at the Harvey Milk High School, which is um, very queer and very BIPOC. And they end up working in that structure as adults. So, it, you know, it answers a lot of different problems outside of just seeing yourself in terms of representation out in the world and having a sense of purpose that is entrenched in art, which is so cool. But what is a ball? A ball is, it's a competition. And houses, the familial structure of the houses tend to be, for um, lack of a better metaphor, kind of like very nonviolent gangs, right? Or breakdancing crews is a good sort of metaphor. And you just, you have your crew and you compete with each other. The most, for categories, you walk a category. The most popular category is voguing. It's sort of the avatar of ballroom. Um, but there are even different subsets of voguing. So it's, you know, Femme Queen's the number one voguing uh, category, but then there's Butch Queen and a whole ton of subsets. Old way, new way. There are all these sort of different styles of voguing. Um, but categories extend to realness. So realness was originally rooted in sort of trans identity before we had that terminology. So on a street level, you would usually be um, born male. And then at a certain point, you would go to a ball and walk realness as a woman. That's sort of the first iteration of realness. But then it branches off into categories that are identity defying as well to certain degrees of seriousness. So one category that is a subset of realness that always kind of cracks me up is like executive realness, which is funny to me because it's like, you know, who's the best businessman? Who's sort of more Wall Street? Who can carry a briefcase, put on glasses, wear a tie, whatever, and pass as an executive? That one cracks me up. Schoolboy realness. Um, recently, somebody walked schoolboy realness and um, went up to the judges carrying a copy of my book. And I was like, yeah, you know, like <laughs> it's official. Um, it's smart. But uh, one of the ones that stuck out to me when I saw Paris is Burning was Town and Country. So that one is, you know, who's the most Hamptons, who's the most Westchester, broad brim hats, tennis whites, that kind of thing. But even in those categories, they sort of transcend class and sort of show how it's all made up. You know, money is a construct, class is a construct, race is an ultimate construct. And so ballroom sort of highlights a lot of that, even though a lot of the implications of these constructs are dire. So if you don't have money, even though it's made up, poverty is at the end of that and death is at the end of that sometimes. And so one of the prime examples of that is um, femme realness, like looking most like a woman. And Paris is burning. Dorian Corey talks about um, it's the ability to blend, right? 
um, to walk on the street and at street level, even not being pegged or clocked. They say clocked as a as a man dressing as a woman. Right. And, you know, a lot of these lines have been sort of blurred or combined or dovetailed now that we have terminology and understanding of gender as a construct and trans identity. But um, back then it was basically like you're in drag and do you look like a woman? Right. Or do you look like a man? So that's sort of the genesis point. The further you go back in time, the more dangerous it is to walk realness or to just be trans. Um, and so that that it isn't just costuming. It isn't just sort of dress up. It's really like transcending identity or achieving the one that you feel is realist to you and getting accolades for it. Yes. But um, it doesn't just stay there on the ballroom floor. It's not just theater. It's now these days, especially it's a way of life. And just then you've spoken about the social response of the ballroom community and especially in light of the AIDS crisis. The ballroom community was deeply affected by the impact of AIDS. If you could speak about kind of what measures they took both in the 80s when it was at its worst, worst peak and the kind of ongoing how it reacts to this. Yeah, I mean, one of the cool things, well, not cool things, but important things to me about ballroom, um, like in my personal history, my mother is from New York. And and so, well, her whole side of the family is. And so she was a recovering, um, she is a recovering addict and a social and a substance abuse counselor right now. I knew a lot of addicts from the 80s, including a lot of my family members. And my one year when I was about 13, four people, including my mom's sister, all passed away from HIV AIDS complications which is weird for someone my age or unusual for someone my age. And so what's really great about a lot of my mentors in the ballroom community is that they can relate to the PTSD of losing a lot of people to the AIDS crisis. So that really sort of, in terms of uh, relatability and representation for me, was really important to be understood that way. But, you know, there's so many sort of organizations and sort of reactions that, um, systemic ones that have come out of the AIDS crisis and ballroom being hit so hard by it. Many organizations, one of them is the Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMHC, here in New York City, which um, is, is sort of like the mainstay not-for-profit that ballroom folks sort of organize within. And the Latex Ball. The Latex Ball is the biggest ball that's been around for about 30, 40 years. It is free. It's huge. This is the first year that they've sort of done an Eventbrite invitation because they always go past like fire codes or whatever. And the latex ball was created by the House of Latex, latex referring to condoms. And so that was a response. It's a fundraiser for um, many or for GMHC and other organizations. And um, people show up there. I have this suspicion that, you know, there's I think it's this one's in June this year. It's always every summer. I think Beyonce might show up because her album is very ballroom. Right. And but uh, people have shown up. I think Madonna showed up before. I know Rihanna has. Um, and so that's my that's my theory. But I'm definitely going to be there. So that's really the sort of big the big thing annually. But, you know, it's always there. Now, we've referenced Madonna's Vogue and we're going to come back to it now. So although ballroom started as an underground culture and remained underground for decades, many of its features have crossed over into the mainstream and one of the most famous being Madonna's Vogue. Mainstream visibility obviously has ample benefits, including greater acceptance and recognition, but can this be a double-edged sword for the ballroom community? 
Yeah, I mean, Vogue, um, let's start with the song. It's a great song. I love that song. And, you know, I teach it now, like in terms of like writing about the arts and how you can attack in your thesis or not even attack, just like state very plainly that this is complicated, right? You don't have to always know the answer to the end of an essay is what I tell students. If you have five questions, if you started with one question and you have five at the end, you're doing something right. And particularly when it comes to Vogue, it's just very complicated. It's made to sound good. It's a pop song, right? It's Madonna. Those songs were great. Um, David Fincher, the director of The Social Network, did the music video. It's gorgeous. But there are a lot of problems with that song. One of them is that in that sort of bridge area where she's naming, you know, Greta Garbo, Marilyn Monroe, all these people, they're all white. They have nothing to do with ballroom. The only thing that really sort of connects with ballroom is the fact that maybe some of them are people that folks from ballroom have dressed up in drag as, <laughs> or, you know, the very, very sort of far flung conclusion that voguing stemmed from the cover of magazines like Vogue, which that's very, it's sort of dubious, which is interesting because I did a, I did an interview uh, last month that'll be out next month with Vogue magazine trying to figure out where it came from. But I think really it's more so, you know, the, the zeitgeist feeling of Vogue, something being in Vogue. So I it, I think it's more towards the avant-garde and the, that's how those link up. Anyhow, though, it is sort of an interpretation of different poses being struck, which can translate to magazine covers. There's that. But that list of people that she says in the, like, none of them are Baldwin people. So that's on the side of like, what are you doing, Madonna? On the other side is she did hire some folks from Ballroom, um, namely, um, Jose Extra Extravaganza, who's a wonderful voguer, was revolutionary when it came to Old Way, which is uh, basically just sharp lines and sort of hieroglyphic type poses. But it's complicated because he was also in a documentary called Strike a Pose, where all of those dancers from that Blonde Ambition tour and from the Vogue video had problems with Madonna and have sued her. Slash, they say they miss her. So, you know, they, these are the, and she misses them. And just last year, Jose Extravaganza was, because um, I think it was some sort of anniversary for Vogue, he was on stage with Madonna. And so if it's complicated for the players, how could we just name what it is, whether it be good or bad, however um, pedantic that is? And so it's very, very complicated. In the music video for Vogue, they, she has all of those dancers, some of them from Ballroom, being the help. They're all butlers dusting off pillars. She looks great. She's not a butler <laughs> or maid. There's this particular part in the video that really just sort of frames for me who Madonna is. She's dancing with someone who's voguing. And mind you, the rest of the video, all of the Vogue choreography outside of what the what people who aren't Madonna are doing is very hokey pokey. Like it's very, very like Macarena. Like it's like very stiff and kind of plain. Then towards the bridge, she's dancing with another guy who she uh, does like sort of a Charlie Chaplin kind of thing. And he's just like really like getting it in, like really voguing like naturally and Im Im improvising. And at one moment, she just sort of elbows him like, okay, that's enough. Like, this is my show. What are you doing? And that kind of is the whole feel of it. Like, even though it's entertaining, there's some, sort of this, um, um, it's about Madonna and not about the culture and not about the dance. And if you ask certain people, you know, all of these interviews that I do, no matter what folks' understanding of the ballroom community is, I always have to start from scratch and say it's not. Madonna didn't invent it. So someone's always going to think that. 
no matter what their level of understanding. So it's complicated and she's made money off of it. For the book, I took that bridge and put in all of the founding mothers of ballroom houses and different ballroom figures and changed the lyrics there. For Beyonce's album, for the song Break My Soul, she has Madonna on the remix and then she redoes that bridge with um, famous black women. So some, and then she names the houses. So at large, she, she is a top tier kind of thing. So I think of that because even me, like I haven't made much money from this book, but it, it is a commodification of the culture. And to a certain degree, I have to interrogate that. If we look at it over a spectrum, then maybe Madonna's the worst case scenario. Maybe me naming specific names is a better case scenario. And maybe Beyonce naming houses and black women that some of them have nothing to do with ballroom is like a middle grade solution. It's really a case of like, are we doing better? Who has ownership over the narrative? Are ballroom people actually involved? On and on and on and on. Now, I want to talk about the language of ballroom. It's great language. It's it's incredible language. And now it's moved over into the mainstream, especially via the internet. I think often it can spread via the wider LGBTQ community. And then suddenly everyone's using terms, for example, the term throwing shade, which can be traced back to Dorian Corey's explanation in Paris is Burning. Shade comes from reading. Reading came first. Reading is the real art form of insult. You get in a smart crack and everyone laughs and kikis because you found a flaw and exaggerated it, then you've got a good read going. But then when you are all of the same thing, then you have to go to the fine point. In other words, if I'm a black queen and you're a black queen, we can't call each other black queens because we're both black queens. That's not a read, that's just a fact. So then we talk about your ridiculous shape, saggy face, your tacky clothes. Then reading became a developed form where it became shade. Shade is, I don't tell you you're ugly, but I don't have to tell you because you know you're ugly. And that's shade. This has been widely used for the past decade by like very, very middle of the road publications and even brands. And in more recent times, the term mother, which is taken from the house system that you explained earlier in our conversation, this is being used ubiquitously to describe women across the internet, famous women. It could be anything from like a picture of Taylor Swift and someone will capture in it, mother is mothering. And then just the other week, the New York Times reported on this saying, gone are daddy days, these are mother times. How do you feel about this terminology entering the broader culture? Um, it's fascinating. I, it's hard. It, another thing that's hard to really pin down or trace is the origin of a word sometimes. Like it, it, gets, so, it gets turned and pivoted so many times that who knows where it began. Um, I mean, you know, I'm always fascinated by like Cockney rhyme because it's just so, it's so far removed from, <laughs> like you have to, it's very, it's very coded. I started to write a cap chapter for this book called Shade and it was supposed to be sort of the lexical origins of all of these terms that you just named and more. I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it because it's too, it's, that's its own book. Um, so it's very hard to sort of trace, but I, and you know, even to your point, maybe the first time in popular media or even independent film, we heard Dorian Corey talk about shade, but she was just explaining what had already existed. She didn't create it, right? It was one of those yeah. things that Jenny Livingston heard so much in the realm over the time of, uh, over the course of filming the documentary that she was like, okay, well, let's define these things. And when I researched it, it did 
trace it back to Jane Austen, so... Oh, really? Yeah, apparently Mansfield Park. Young Edmund Bertram is displeased with a dinner guest's disparagement of the uncle who took her in. And then, quote, with such warm feelings and lively spirits, it must be difficult to do justice to her affection for Mrs. Crawford without throwing a shade on the Admiral. Throwing? Oh, that's very specific. Yeah, 1814. But maybe that's the first time it was in print, you know? So, like, how do we, yeah. even, how do we even know? That's fascinating. Huh. Um, and I love Jane Austen. I, I shouldn't, but I do. But, like, so, but, but just, just for the pomp and circumstance of it all, right? And, you know, there is a power dynamic there when you're throwing shade, you're on top of it, presumably. That's fascinating. Well, you just sort of, sort of underscored the point. It's really hard to tell. And I think a lot of these, a lot of folks um, hear these, this terminology on RuPaul's Drag Race and think that's the point of origin. You know, you hear a lot of these terms now on like the Housewives shows and they definitely got it from their hairdresser, you know, a couple of weeks back or whatever. So it's hard. It's so hard. I always think about both Harold and Lament, the fact that the one of the main definitions of literally now is figuratively. We're in, it's end times. Like everything's upside down and where did it all, where did it all come from? So... There's been a lot of praise for projects like Paris is Burning and the FX series Pose um, for kind of the, the light that it's shed on this culture, but also criticism, as you referenced, the people who took part in Paris is Burning, a lot of um, people from within the community, they were, you know, hurt that they didn't get paid or that they felt commodified and used. So I wanted to ask if you were nervous about writing your own book and how this book's been received both inside and outside of the community? Yeah, I mean, nervous, um, maybe, maybe. But I, but again, I kind of knew I was the best person for the job. And, you know, my like I was saying, my f- first degree in writing was part of a scholarship program called Writing in Democracy. So I knew, I knew sort of how I wanted to engage. My two gay fathers from ballroom wanted it to be two things, unapologetically black, which is a no brainer. And then um, an indictment of capitalism. So um, which is fine for me because that's sort of where my roots are um, laid in like punk rock scenes and stuff. And so I, I had a North Star. I knew what I was trying to achieve. And my thesis can't be screw capitalism while I'm capitalizing off of a thing, right? So I had to be very much aware of that. And I named it a few times in the book. But I knew that I wanted to involve folks in ballroom in the conversation. So even though every essay is written by me, there are interviews sort of strewn throughout and at the end of every chapter that involves the direct voice of someone in ballroom. And finally, looking ahead, what opportunities and challenges lie ahead for the ballroom community? Um, I think just further ownership. I mean, you named Pose and Ryan Murphy was an executive producer and creator of it. And then a lot of people from Ballroom um, were involved and that's way better than Madonna, I would say. Um, But um, they don't have royalties or ownership of a lot of it. So a lot of people were brought on, some of my family members were brought on as consultants. In that instance, you don't get residuals from episodes. You just are on a contract. So if my book in the category is becomes a docu-series or a documentary, which we're thinking is going to happen and some folks have reached out, baseline, my ballroom family who participates, they're going to be producers on that so that when this goes to film or TV or whatever, they have ownership over it. And every time it's shown, they get something. So I think ownership and I think, you know, 
one of the theses in the book was, you know, screw capitalism when it comes to ballroom and appropriation. But one of the surprises at the end of it, one of the questions I ended up having was like, okay, well, the equation goes, you know, capitalism plus ballroom equals horrible, right? But what if capitalism in our lifetime isn't something that we're going to deconstruct? Then like, how do we do better in that instance with ballroom? So I think it equals ownership of narrative and the commodification being owned by the people whose story it belongs to. Ricky, thank you. That was Ricky Tucker, author of And the Category Is, Inside New York's Vogue, House and Ballroom Community. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared. 